Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Steve. It's good to be with you today as we open up God's Word. Here at Faith Bible Church this summer, we are going through the little Old Testament book of Joel. and encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Joel. And today we will be in the first eight verses of chapter 3. Up to this point in our study, we have seen in chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 27, God disciplining his people Israel because their hearts have grown cold toward him, grown far from him. They've they've stopped walking in obedience. So the Lord told them in chapter 1, verse 15, that a day of the Lord was coming. This would be a period of time that we know from chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that a army from the north would come in and invade Israel. They'd already experienced God's discipline and the plight of locusts coming in and totally destroying the vegetation and the crops. And now God said, because of your disobedience, I'm going to send this invading army. He also told them that they needed to come back to him, to repent, to return to me with all your heart, as the prophet Joel told the people to do in chapter 2, verse 12. And evidently, they did that. We see in chapter 2, verse 18, that the people must have repented because God had compassion on his people. And he said he would drive that northern army away and he would restore the land. Well, at the end of chapter 2, verse 27, we came to a major change in the thrust of the book. We still have this theme of the day of the Lord, but starting in chapter 2, verse 28, instead of looking at a day of the Lord that could come just like right now, Joel starts talking about a day of the Lord that is yet to come, a future day of the Lord. And we saw last week that other Old Testament prophets talked about this same time. For example, the prophet Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, all talked about this time where God will break through history, will come and deliver his people and initiate his kingdom. With that coming period of time when God breaks through history, we also see God breaking through history in judgment. Now that's something that we don't like to focus on much today. God and his judgment. But we're going to note this morning that it's important for us to see that God punishes sin. It's important for us to note all throughout the Bible, that there will be a day of reckoning when God will bring judgment on the peoples who have stood in rejection of him. And we're going to see that that critical combination of God's judgment and his righteousness. I'm going to read the first eight verses of chapter 3, and you can follow along in your copy of the Bible. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. 
Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they've divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for a wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory, behold, I'm going to arouse them from the place where you sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah And they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken. Why is it important for us today to recognize God as judge? To see throughout scripture that there is a judgment still awaiting those who stand in rejection of the Lord. Well, it's important for a couple of reasons. One, if God does not bring judgment, his righteousness is violated. In other words, God is a right God. He is the standard. There's no sin in him at all. If he did not punish sin, it would actually detract from his righteousness. It is impossible for a righteous God to not punish sin. If God just overlooked sin and said, oh, I'll just let them get away with it, it would actually violate his very character. So God's righteousness and judgment go hand in hand. And we're going to see that in a variety of passages this morning. Second, it's important for us to see God's character as a righteous judge because his sure judgment reminds us today that we do not have to Get back at people who hurt us. We don't have to exercise judgment. We don't have to pay back. God is the one who judges sin. And so this morning as we look at Joel chapter 3 verses 1 through 8, we see yet again another reference to this future day of the Lord. When God will break through history, deliver his people, institute his kingdom on earth, and bring judgment. When my youngest son was in the eighth grade, he started to play for a very competitive AAU basketball team that traveled all over the United States. I 
put my eighth grade son on an airplane and he flew to New York without mom and dad. He went to Houston. He went to Dallas. He went to Orlando. He traveled from eighth grade all the way through high school all over the country. Now, you can imagine that protective dad had some nervousness about that process. And so we had lots of father and son preparation visits. The other thing that was kind of amazing to me is they didn't stay at Super 8 and Motel 6. They stayed in high-end hotels. And I could just picture my son going into his hotel room and seeing a little refrigerator there and opening it up and finding Snickers and, and sodas and all kinds of treats in there thinking, well, these just must be here for me. I guess I can just eat to my heart's content and drink soft drinks to my heart's content. There's no prices on this stuff. It must just be part of the room. And I knew my son back then, he would systematically work his way from the top all the way to the bottom, thinking, hey, this is a great deal. I can just do what I want to do. Mom and Dan aren't around to control my intakes. And dad had to remind him that at those high-end hotels, there's no free lunch. That all of that stuff in that little refrigerator is extremely expensive. And if you open the door and just remove something and try to put it back, you will still be charged. That there's a sensor (coughs) inside of that refrigerator. That there will be a bill... Do that there is a cost to be paid, even though at the time you may think you can just do whatever you want to do. And sometimes when we are living life today, we look around and it feels sometimes like the people around us just get to do whatever they want to do. I'm going to live my life, and it's my life, and it doesn't make any difference what you think about it. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And just, it seems, it feels like they just get away with it. If you want to hurt somebody, go ahead and hurt them. There's no ramifications. There's, there's, there's really, there's really not much that happens. And as a Christian, it's so often we feel that We're the brunt of that. And nothing happens. And yet we are reminded today in the book of Joel that we serve a right God who is a right standard of what is right and wrong. He is righteous. He is holy. He's completely separate from any kind of sin. And because of his character as a righteous, holy God, sin does not go unpunished. That there will be a day when God exercises judgment. Now this morning, Pastor Brian alluded to the fact that what a joy it is for Christians As we gather together on a Sunday morning, for those of us who have recognized our sin in the depths of our soul, 
For us, we have great joy because we recognize that God does pour out his wrath on sin. But he's also a God of love who sent his one and only son to earth so that he could live a sinless life and be the recipient of all of God's wrath poured out on him. So God sends his one and only son to take on the penalty for all of our sin upon himself. And he died in our place and then rose again from the dead. As a Christian, we have great hope and great peace that we will never face the wrath of God because Jesus Christ faced it for us. But for the person who stands in rejection of Jesus Christ, even though they think they're getting away with it today, one day, they will face God's judgment. As we come to chapter 3 this morning, in verses 1 through 3, we see that someday in the future, that God is going to judge the Gentile nations for their treatment of his chosen people Israel, for scattering the people of Israel and dividing up the land of promise. The section opens in chapter 3, verse 1, Again, with a reference that we saw last week in the end of chapter 2, that God will restore his people Israel. It says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. So there is going to be a restoration. Remember, in this day of the Lord, a major theme of that is God breaking through history delivering his people and initiating his kingdom. But with that restoration comes judgment. And that's really the focus of these verses this morning. He says, when I restore my people, verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, if you would like to know where the valley of Jehoshaphat is, so do a whole lot of other people. Because the only reference in the Bible to the valley of Jehoshaphat is right here in Joel chapter 3. Verse 1 and verse 12 is the only place we find where this, to which this, this valley is referred. It's it. It's here. Some Bible teachers think that this valley will be here on earth, but it's not here yet. They think it's a reference to the valley that is referred to in the book of Zechariah chapter 14. In Zechariah chapter 14, we have a section talking about the end times. Here at Faith Bible Church, we would place what's described in Zechariah 14 as happening at the end of the seven-year period of tribulation, right before the kingdom begins. And in Zechariah 14, we have this awesome description of Jesus coming back to earth, the Lord coming back to earth, and his feet coming down and resting on top of the Mount of Olives on the edge of Jerusalem, and the mount 
splitting in two, creating a valley. I'll read the verses. Zechariah 14, starting to read in verse 1. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. So the verse describes the nations of the earth all coming together to attack little Israel. And about the time when they're going to be totally obliterated. Verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. So some Bible teachers think... Then when we come to Joel chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 12, this valley of Jehoshaphat will be the valley formed when the Mount of Olives splits in the end times. The literal name Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges. So regardless of the fact whether one holds that it could be this valley that's referred to in Zechariah 14, or just a valley that's not known to us, the point is this. God is going to bring the nations together, those nations who stand in rebellion against him, and he's going to judge them. He's going to punish them for the sin that they have exercised against his people. He says in verse 2, Then I will enter into judgment with them there, On behalf of my people, my inheritance, Israel. He goes on in verse 2 and tells what the nations have done to Israel. They've scattered them among the nations. If you look up at verse 3, it says that Israelites were sold as slaves. And then he goes on and says, and they divided up my land. We know from history that the Assyrians came in in 722 B.C., and captured the northern peoples of Israel and, and, and deported them out of the region. We also know that in 701 BC, the Assyrians took some from Judah, the southern peoples. We also know from history that between 605 BC and 586 BC, the Babylonians came in and captured the southern peoples, the people of Judah. And deported many of them. So we know that what's described here has taken place historically. Even more than just by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The prophets look to this day. When God will break through history. Will deliver his people. Will initiate his kingdom. And bring judgment on the Gentile nations. I'm going to read one verse out of Zephaniah, the the prophet Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 8. And Zephaniah the prophet says this, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation and my burning anger 
for the, all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Sin, rebellion against God, one day will be judged. This past week, a couple of the pastors and myself from here at Faith Bible Church took a couple of days off out of the office and we went to Chicago to catch a couple of baseball games. I had never been to either of the fields, so we went to Wrigley on one afternoon and saw the Cubs. And then the next evening, we went to U.S. Cellular and saw the White Sox. I'm a Cubs fan. So anyway, so we see both, we see both games and we are at U.S. Cellular Field on Thursday night and it was actually a beautiful night even though the facility's not like as good as Wrigley, but we're at this facility and we're watching this game and, and all of a sudden people start talking through the crowd about a storm coming. And then somebody Instagrammed me and said, there's a storm coming your way. And then, Pastor Eric on our staff had his radar and said, man, this looks like this could be intense. And then there were announcements made for the people in the upper tiers of the facility. They needed to vacate those areas because lightning was starting to shoot across the sky and it was thundering. And then it let loose. A torrential rainstorm. And it just came in sheets and sheets. And the lightning was going and the thunder was going. And of course everybody retreated and they postponed the game. And uh, for a while I decided just to go and watch the storm. And the more I watched the storm I thought, this is so cool because I was perfectly secure I'm surrounded by concrete and I'm sure just tons of rebar. And yet I'm right on the edge of this mammoth storm. And for one of the first times I could remember, it was backlit because all of the lights are on. And so you see this torrential rain coming down right in front of you and lightning and thunder. They could have even thrown a tornado in there and I would have been fine because I'm surrounded by concrete and rebar. And I watched the designs of the storm and and the waves of rain and just stood there perfectly at peace. And you know, each and every one of us, if you're not in a storm in your life right now, hang on because we spend our entire life either heading into a storm in a storm, or briefly out of a storm in the sunshine. And we pretty much go through life that way. And the people to whom Joel is writing here are in a storm. Remember, their land's devastated. They don't know where supper's coming from. They can't even carry on worship the way they desire to because there's not enough grain to bring a grain offering to the temple. They're in a storm. And yet, God breaks through their situation. 
and reminds them. Even though these people from the north had come in and possibly started to take advantage of them, God reminds them that he is a righteous judge. You know, when we face a storm, it's important for us to find an anchor. I don't know about in your life. I'm guessing you're similar to me. When things get hard, the tendency is to want to retreat. The tendency is to pull away from God, to pull away from our brothers and sisters in Christ, and possibly get underneath our kitchen table in a fetal position. Right? I mean, we don't really want to see, oh, I'm going through such hard time. I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm just going to retreat. What we need to do in a storm is the exact opposite. We need to run to God. We need to run to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we come to God, what we need as an anchor is a fresh look at who he is. You see, our anchor, our concrete, and our rebar, that thing that gives us peace as we are in the storm, is not our own ability, our own intellect, our, our, our creative, creative way of getting through the storm. Our anchor is God himself. And God wants to do for you and for me the same thing he does here for these people to whom Joel writes. He wants to remind us of his attributes and his character. That's our anchor. You know, all through the Bible, we see God being a righteous God and a God who brings judgment. Remember, we said at the beginning, those two cannot be separated. If you come to the Old Testament, for example, in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 7, verse 11, it says this, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. God's a God of wrath towards sin. God is a God of wrath toward those who shake their fist at him and say, I'm going to live my life the way I want to. He has to be because of his very character as a right God, a righteous God, a holy God who has no sin. We come to the New Testament looking at a passage like Romans chapter 2 verse 5 where it tells us, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Again, we see those two concepts together. God is a righteous God. He's a fair God. He is the standard of what is right and what is wrong. There's no sin in him at all. And because of who he is and his character, it demands that sin be punished. That judgment does occur. Now, why is that important for you and for me in the storm? Because it reminds us 
that people will pay. That when someone is hurting you, when someone is hurting your kid, when someone is hurting someone that you deeply care about, and it seems like there's no ramifications at all, one day, judgment will come. And that's a good thing for us to recognize because the New Testament writers remind us that judgment will come. We Why? Because God is a God who's the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. He is a holy God. There's no sin in him at all. He is a righteous God. He is the standard of what's right and wrong. And he always deals rightly. And because of that, he will pour out his wrath on sin. Now that gives comfort to Joel's readers. Especially as we come forward into verses 4 through 8. Because in verses 4 through 8, we see that God pays back specific people for specific wrongs they do against his people. It's very interesting how specific God gets here in verses 4 through 8 through the prophet Joel. Notice verse 4. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and the regions of Philistia? So here we find the prophet Joel speaking the word of the Lord against these peoples of the, the Phoenicians, Tyre and Sidon, and the Philistines. Now these were not a people of great number. That's not like Egypt or Babylon or the Assyrians. This is a small number of people. But God specifically calls them out and tells them that they will pay for their specific sins that they've committed against his people. And God takes it very personally. In fact, if you look at verse 4, he uses the pronoun me. Even the offenses come against his people. But he says, what are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? That's a word we don't use very much, recompense. It just means to pay somebody back. So he says, are you trying to get back at me by hurting Israel? But if you do pay back me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense, your payback, on your head. In fact, there's kind of a a play on words, a repetition of words here, because you see that word recompense or payback used in verse 4. Then if you come down to verse 7, it says, Behold, I'm going to arouse them from the place where you've sold them and return your payback on your head. Now, what did these people specifically do? Well, it tells us in verse 5 that they robbed God. Most likely, it's a reference to the fact that even though the Babylonians are the ones known for destroying the temple of Israel in 586 B.C., these peoples, these Phoenicians and these Philistines, also very well may have gone in and taken some of the articles of worship out of the temple. God says, you took my gold and put it in your temples. Then in verse 6, it says they practiced ethnic cleansing. 
They didn't want any Jews in their region, so they sold them into slavery. Verse 6, And they sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory. So God says, You think you're getting back at me by hurting my people. But guess what? I'm going to get back at you. You sold my sons of Israel into slavery. Look at verse 8. I will also sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah. You see, God says these specific people are going to specifically be judged for their specific sins. About three weeks ago, I received an email from England inviting me to come in September to speak at a two-day conference in England on living the Christian life. And it said, we found you on your website, and we would like you to come share the scripture with our people. Well, I read this email, and they came through our church website. They specifically came to me. And I thought, there's something not right here. First of all, I'm in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I don't know any of these people. I'm not a known preacher. Something's up. I'll just see if there's any more communication. A week or so later, a second email. Pastor Benton, we really want to hear from you. Um, you are the only person internationally we are asking to come to this conference. Everyone else is from England. And if you say that you'll come, we'll work out your travel arrangements. Embedded in the email was a place where they called me by name twice, except one of the places had a different guy's name in there. I thought, oh, this is interesting. And so I Googled that guy's name, and he's a pastor in Georgia. So I'm thinking, you guys are a bunch of scammers. They had, I looked up their website, had a beautiful church website, all the pictures of five different pastors from four different sites. The guy that wrote me the letter saw his picture. They were trying to scam preachers. I guess they think that maybe, you know, we're a bunch of, we don't know what's going on. And I'm sure what would have happened is they would have said, now, to get your tickets, please send us a copy of your passport and your social security number or something. I don't know. But they... We're trying to take advantage. They were trying to hurt someone. And we look at that kind of white collar kind of stuff and we say, nothing will happen to them. They're probably not in England. They're probably in some Russian, uh, European bloc country somewhere just trying to take advantage of people. Nothing will happen to them. And sometimes we almost become despondent Because it feels like nothing ever happens to those who hurt others. And yet, God wants to remind us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Listen to this verse. This is an encouragement to us when we see people getting hurt. This is a plain indication of God's 
righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. What am I supposed to do when I'm in the storm? What am I supposed to do when I feel like someone close to me is being hurt or my kid is being hurt or I'm being hurt, you're being hurt, your child is being hurt? How are we supposed to respond in the storm? Well, not are the way we normally feel like responding, which is to withdraw. We don't withdraw when we go through the storm and pull away from God's people. We do the opposite. We run to God. And we run to God's people. And we share the burdens of our heart with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pray for each other. And we get into God's Word. And I would encourage us as we read God's Word, before we start to read and while we read, just to pray and say, God, please help me see a fresh glimpse of who you are as I read today. Just ask a question. What does this passage teach me about God's attributes? What does this passage teach me, show me about who God is? And the other thing that we do in the storm is what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12. In in chapter 12, verse 19, we read this. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, God will pay back the nations for their mistreatment of Israel. And God will repay with his wrath, those who in rebellion against him have hurt you. But what a joy it is to know that as a Christian, we will never face the wrath of God. Why? Because the wrath of God has been poured out on his one and only son, Jesus, who took the penalty of our sin upon himself. If you're here today, And you don't know if you're right with God. You don't know if Jesus' payment for sin is credited to your life. I would encourage you after the service. Just We have a room right behind you called the prayer room. And one of our leaders will be there. And you can just go in and say, Hey, can I have some of that material Pastor Steve was talking about? And you can take your own Bible and take the little pamphlet they give you and look up verses that you can see in your own Bible that give you assurance of how you can be right with God. You see, sin does not go unpunished. And for those who stand in rebellion against Him, one day will be time to pay up. There is a cost. And God will judge. But for those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ, 
we will never face that day. Father, we thank you for the encouragement we find in the book of Joel. That when we go through the storm, we can be reminded and anchored in your character. And be reminded that you will judge sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.